we are in the one of the weirdest passages in Scripture, the passage that we always skip. I don't need this. Um, but uh, uh, it's the Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And if you turn with me there, uh, we'll continue uh, our study through these names. And uh, it's interesting as you look through these names, and Kendi made me read them all last week because sometimes she likes to do things like that to me. And she just likes to see if I could pronounce them. There is something associated with every single one of these names. If you look closely, if you flip back into Genesis and and well, there's Exodus, there's Chronicles and the first and second Kings, there's pain associated with every single one of these names. I mean, you look at it, Isaac, Isaac had a pain moment where his dad was going to sacrifice him. You look at, uh, uh, well, let's pick another one that I can know off the top of my head, but Rehoboam in in the division of the kingdom. And, And you start to see all these pain moments and you start to realize that pain is usually something that comes in our life, whether we try to avoid it or not. Pain happens. It should be the bumper sticker. We're going to experience a hard time in our life. And as we look through these stories, there's there's pain that that was tried to be avoided, or pain that was the the individual in the story tried to avoid and they couldn't. And we we get that all the time. There's pain that you can that you can get away from. There's pain that you can that you can skip. And you can do your best to arrange your furniture in your house in such a way that at night you'll memorize where everything is. But the corner of the couch is always going to get you. And it is what? Painful. I could ask you what words you shout in the middle of the night when that happens, but I don't know if that's appropriate. We all, we'll all have it. Life happens like that. Sometimes something's going to happen to you and pain happens. Sometimes the pain is accidental, like kicking the couch. Sometimes the pain is on purpose. Sometimes we go through some things, whether it's in our life where we're looking at something coming at us and like, this is going to be hard. Uh, A few years ago now, I had shoulder surgery. It was one of the most painful things I've ever been a part of. Uh, I couldn't move this arm for three months. It was painful. The worst part of it, though, was the rehab that came with it. Uh, But it was painful. And if I wanted to have normal functioning use of my arm for the rest of my life, I needed to go have this tendon reattached somewhere in my arm with a screw and they had to go in and get it. Pain is sometimes on purpose and we have to go through pain. The worst kind of pain that we can go through, though, is the pain that happens to us. The pain that, that, that occurs in your life when it's not your choice. Someone did something to you. Someone else's actions brought you pain. Someone lied. Someone stabbed you in the back. Someone broke trust. Someone took advantage of you. Someone hurt you, and it caused you pain. And the question that gets raised as we're looking at these names is, what do we do in the midst of our pain? We're going to run into it. We're going to have difficult times, and there's something about this time of year where the painful moments seem to rise to the top, whether it's the pain of losing someone or the pain of being alone, or some other pain that comes. When the sun goes away, we start to get really introspective and things stir up with us. Pain occurs. So how do we get through that pain? What do we do when we're in the middle of it, in the midst of our pain? How do we come to the other side and not stay there? When I was going through the uh, physical therapy to be able to move my arm like this again... um, they pushed me, they put me on the table, they stretched my arm way out, and then they had these like tools that I saw in Braveheart when at the very end where they're finishing him, uh, and they dug him into my arm, and they were pulling this, this 
tendon up and down. And I was looking at the guy. His name was Dave. I said, Dave, what are you doing? He goes, just trust me. And I said, is it ever not going to hurt? And he goes, eventually we'll get there. He said, I've been, I've been doing this for some time. It's going to get better. It's going to take a few months, but trust me, I've been here before. This is my fourth bicep tendon this year. And it was February at that moment. And he said, this is normal for the course. It's going to get worse and then it's going to get better. And then he said, the more you trust me, the more you trust the process that we have, the more you stick these rubber bands in the door jam of your house and do all the things I'm telling you to do, the better it'll be for you. And it was true. Uh, This pain that I was occurring, the more I trusted the person who was uh, helping me get through it, the more the pain went away and the more it became normal and I got to the other side of it. Trusting the person allowed me to get through and push through the pain. And if I wanted normal usage, I had to trust what Dave and his torture devices were doing. The worst was the scar tissue one. That was awful. But I had to trust what he was doing to me. This whole idea plays very well as we look into this passage uh, in, in our relationship with God. I don't believe that God intentionally brings pain into our lives. Now, there's a lot of theological statement into there. We could talk about that another time. I think pain happens. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where sickness is around. We live in the world where cancer exists, and it's all a product of sin. I don't think God ever intended that to happen. But I do believe, and the scripture shows us, that God will use that pain in our life to do something better. God is in the business of redeeming pain. God is in the business of bringing purpose to the pain that we can never imagine. And so we see this principle in this genealogy of Matthew. Most of the names on there experience pain. However, God still worked in that promise. And that promise that God works is a promise that we can hold on to when we enter pain. So if you look in your Bible, we've been studying the, the, the women of this genealogy because that stands out. And normal genealogies didn't have women mentioned, but Matthew mentions five of them. And this one is, is a little interesting. It's a lot interesting, or else we wouldn't be talking about it today. So if you look in verse 5, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Remember Rahab? She was the, uh, in the town of Jericho. She ran the tavern. She was a prostitute. The, the Bible calls her a prostitute like six times. She had Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Last week, uh, Kendi talked to us about Ruth. Uh, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. We all know David. He wrestled a lion. He had the slingshot. He was a good dude. He was an okay dude, actually. David was the father of Solomon. And then there's this phrase that stands out, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, there, it, it might strike you a little odd here. Why isn't she named Matthew had great intentionality where he did this and why, and we'll get to that in a minute, but Matthew is tying this story together, and in doing so, and mentioning these, these names, and it's not only the women that had the pain, it, there's a lot of men in here that we're looking at going, why, why are you bringing this up to us, Matthew? And what Matthew's showing us is the gospel can show itself in the hardest parts of our lives. In the pain that we have, the gospel shows itself. God redeems that. Matthew could have chosen any women to put in the story. He could have talked about Rebecca and Sarah. He, he didn't. Instead, he chose the ones he did in order to get our attention, in order for us, if you study these names, to ask the question, what is God doing in the midst of all of this? What is God doing with these names? What is God doing with these pains? And it's the questions that maybe you ask yourself. What is God going to do with this ache that I have in my life? How is he going to work on it? 
David was the father of Solomon. Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Do you think you know who Uriah's wife is? Bathsheba. Second Samuel tells us her story. She's Uriah's wife. Uriah is one of, is one of King David's most loyal, decorated soldiers. Uh, he's a military officer. She's the daughter of Elon. Elion was, David had these fighting men, his special forces, you could spell, it's like SEAL Team 6, we could say. And they would go in, and they were, that was her dad was one of those people. She came from a very powerful family. She's connected. Her family's known. Well, Bathsheba did nothing wrong. We hear the word Bathsheba and we go, oh, she's the one that had the affair with David. No, hold on. Bathsheba did nothing wrong. She was where she was supposed to be. She was doing what she was supposed to be doing. She was bathing, The Second Samuel 11 tells us. She was bathing after uh, the time of her month, after her menstrual cycle, following uh, what was spelled out for her to do in the law. She was bathing, the mikvah bathing, to cleanse herself, to be clean again. She was doing something good when she was doing what David saw her doing. Some versions of the story like to blame Bathsheba, and, and they really shouldn't. Versions of the story said that Bathsheba knew that David was watching her, and she seduced him. Uh, that's, that's not what happened. Some, some will use this story to talk about women and how they should dress appropriately. That, that's not the point of this story. Uh, Bathsheba did nothing wrong. David was the villain in this story. In fact, throughout the story, Bathsheba is the one who's depicted as more of a hero than David is. David wasn't supposed to be where he was. If you look at Sir Samuel 11, we're not going to read the whole story. It's long, but well, you can go back to it in your quiet time if you'd like. David was supposed to be at battle with his army. Good kings go to battle with their soldiers and they're present around them. Yet, he wasn't there. He was supposed to be with Uriah. But the text is clear. David was in a place where he shouldn't have been. He was allowing his eyes to go to a place where they shouldn't go. And then he let his heart follow and do something he shouldn't have done. He saw her. He went to her. He got her. He slept with her. And then he sent her back home. And if you look at the actions taken, Bathsheba did nothing wrong at all. All of these actions David was doing was so David could have what he wanted. David was in the wrong. It's possible for people who are called the people after God's own heart to do something wrong, and David did just that. David used his power and his influence to have his way with Bathsheba. And in many ways, the text paints this picture that David most likely raped Bathsheba in that time. So Bathsheba had pain happen to her. And the story might be uh, triggering for some of us in this room who've had this kind of action done to us. Uh, and, and we can look at this and go, oh, we're not going to talk about that. But no, 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 the text is clear. We need to talk about this. Because pain happens in our lives and we need to figure out what is God going to do in the midst of our broken places where people have violated us. How do we find God in the midst of it? David tried to cover it up. He called Uriah home and said, hey, Uriah, you're doing so good in battle. Why don't you come home? Have a little R&R. So Uriah comes home because he's a good soldier. He follows orders. He goes and sees the king. And David says, you know what? Why don't you go home and sleep with your wife? And yet Uriah, because he's such a good soldier, says, no. 
If my men are out there in battle, I'm not going to have the comforts of home. I'm going to sleep on my doorstep. See, David was trying to cover up his mistake because Bathsheba sent him word a few months later and said, I'm pregnant. Uriah is out of town. This is yours. And so if he can get Uriah to come home and sleep with his wife, then, then maybe, maybe people wouldn't think that he did anything wrong, but David's plan didn't work. So David sends Uriah back out to the battlefield and orders Joab, who's the, the four-star general, so to speak, in that arena and says, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting's going to be the most intense. And then when it gets time, pull back the soldiers and leave Uriah out there all by himself. And ultimately, Uriah was killed and David thinks he got away with it. Then one morning, he thinks he got away with sin. He's like, yeah, I'm still the most powerful person in the world. You can see David's ego puffing up. And when you're ego and you think you're, you're the most powerful person, you don't really think that you have consequences. And then the prophet of God, Nathan, comes in and says, we know what you did. I know what you did. And it was wrong. It's a painful storyline in the text, and it's a painful storyline for many men and women in our world today who have this happen to us. And it's a messy story, but we shouldn't avoid it. We need to remember that no matter how messy the text gets, God's in the business of making things right. So historically, we've heard this all through the lens of David, what David did. And we all hear that, yeah, he repented, and he did. There's forgiveness even for people who perpetrate evil. And if we don't think that people who are evil have a chance at forgiveness and redemption, that says more about us than it says about our God. Because God's in the business of bringing everybody back to him. And so David has his moment, and we know Psalm 51 is there, and he has his come back to God moment, and, and, and we believe it was genuine. But we rarely see this story from those lines of Bathsheba. Why isn't she named it's a mistake she never initiated. It's an advance that she never invited. It's pain that she didn't choose, but it was caused to her. Pain and grief and suffering. What do we do when a painful mistake happens to us and it isn't your fault? One of the insights we could see in Bathsheba is that we can trust God, that God doesn't stop working but th- uh, when our pain happens. And we can trust that he is working in the midst of it. Like my shoulder physical trainer, the pain is still working in the midst of it. It's not that we stopped working because it hurt. So what do we do when we have to feel the consequences of someone else's sin that wasn't our fault in the first place? How do you move forward? How do you cope? How do you trust? How do you trust that God is good when so much wrong is going on for you? And this is the question that I have when I look at the story of Bathsheba. And I thought of trying to find myself in a place where how do, how do I build trust or how is trust portrayed around me? And I thought of my neighbor's pool. It's random, but follow me on this. Our neighbors have a pool and we could see it from our house. And when we moved in, it's one of the first thing we noticed, like they have a pool. Awesome. And then we realized that they have a, a, a little boy, Caleb's age. We're like, even better, we're in. And, and it, came, it came down to when it gets hot, they gave us permission to go swim in their pool, which is the best kind of neighbors to have. It's like you want a neighbor with a boat so you don't have to pay for the boat, yet you can go on it. And you want a neighbor with a pool so that you could swim in it without having to sweep it afterwards, right? You want those, you want those kinds of friends. Well, we'd go swimming, 
And one of the things my boys like me to do is stand in the shallow end and throw them as high as they can go, right? As high as I can throw them. It really pleases Carrie when I get them really high. It, it makes her nervous, right? Because the boys are like 12 feet high and I'm sitting there going, I hope I catch them. And I catch them. And then they splash, they take the water out of their ears and their nose and then they say these words to me, do it again. All right, let's see if I can get higher. And we go higher. And there's a picture I have of Caleb, and I should have put it in. And he's, I don't know, he, he only weighed about 20 pounds at the time, and that's not very heavy for me. And I had him, and he was probably as high as the lights. And I'm going, oh, dear. And I caught him. And he gets down there. He goes, do it again. Now, the key to this game, and I've told them this, is that they need to be totally relaxed when I throw them. They need to be totally relaxed in the air because the moment they stiffen up and become like a board is the moment they start to, to tilt their bodies and it makes it really hard for me to catch them. Okay, so they've learned to relax. They've learned that the higher they fly, the more relaxed they needed to be. And then they need to learn this. They need to learn that I'm going to catch them at the bottom of it. And it took them a while to figure this out. But the more I threw them, the more I caught them, the more they were able to relax in this. And what were they doing? They were building trust in me. And that's what we need to learn through the story of Bathsheba is that we have a God who in the middle of our chaos, when we're flying through the air, we can trust that God is going to catch us. It doesn't make the pain easier. It doesn't make flying through the air even less, any more less scary than it is. It doesn't take away what's happened to you. But what it does is it builds the trust that we know that God is going to be there and he's going to catch us in the middle of this pain and we're going to be okay. We learn to trust the person in the middle of our pain. The same is true with God. The more we surrender, the more we can trust. The more we remember what he's done in the past, the more we remember what he's done throughout the pages of scripture, the more we can have a faith and a confidence that he'll do it again. It's not that we get to the bottom of it and we go, do it again, God, send us through the pain. No, 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 no. I don't know if anyone ever wants to do that. But the more we know that God's going to catch us, the more we can trust him in the middle of it. And Jesus talks about this. In John 15, he says, you know what? Abide in me. Stay with me. Attach yourself to me. And that's where the trust begins. A trust begins with a healthy attachment to God. The more you know him, the more you know his character, the more you know that he'll catch you with it. And Jesus says, remain in me. Remain attached to me. And you'll bring fruit. This pain will be redeemed. And we see this in Bathsheba. We don't know why this happened to her. We don't know why Dave, what David was thinking. But we see that, that God redeemed her through it. And through Bathsheba's story, I think that we can see a couple things. We can see two things that we can apply to our lives. The first is that we need to remain attached to what God is doing. Isaiah 26 says this. He says, you will keep in perfect peace those, who mind, those whose minds are steadfast and then we, we look at that and go, okay, we just have to be steadfast. We have to be steadfast in what we're doing. And we're going through the pain. We just got to remain constant. But there's a last phrase there. Steadfast, because why? They trust in you. Sometimes in the middle of uh, our pain, we forget to trust. But you'll be in perfect peace, flying through the air of your chaos, if you remain steadfast, knowing that you can trust in God. Our minds will be focused on the person instead of our pain. Bathsheba's story is brief, 
but we can learn, learn some things. The first is that we can learn to trust. The second is this. We can trust that God will defend us where we've been offended. So Bathsheba lived in a time where women had no voice. Women uh, had zero rights. They're considered prop- property. They were treated poorly. They were traded and bartered, and uh, they were part of people's estates. And, that, and the fact that David is the most powerful person in the world at that time doesn't help Bathsheba's case. Bathsheba was unable to speak for herself. Bathsheba had no choice but to go to David. She was unable to defend herself. And because of that, we see that God steps in and becomes her defender. God defended her where she was offended. God enters the story through the prophet Nathan. Nathan was, uh, was God's representative to the nation of Israel at that time. And so when Nathan walks in, it's like God is walking into the building. God is about to speak. In 2 Samuel 11, he says this. When Uriah's wife had heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David brought her into his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And this is where Nathan comes into the story. He comes in and he tells this parable about a man who steals a prized lamb of a poor man. And the story enrages David because he's blinded to his own sin until Nathan removes the blinders and said, David, you're the evil person in the story. And a few verses later, David's being confronted and Nathan says this, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised and took the wife of Uriah to be your own. God spoke what Bathsheba, God spoke into what Bathsheba could have said but didn't have the voice to say it. God stepped into the story and became her defender. God's ear is always bending towards injustice and God's ear listens very closely. God became her defender. And perhaps some of us here today have walked in those shoes and we look a lot like Bathsheba. You feel defenseless. You feel exposed. Your words have gone unheard. Your pain has been unnoticed. Your needs have been unmet. And you hear this story and say, I need a defender like that. Someone to stand up for me. Someone to stand in my place and give voice where my voice can't be heard. Maybe something's happened to you and it shouldn't have happened. Perhaps you've been wronged and you need to hear that God's heart for God's heart for you, that that thing that happened wasn't good. It was sin. You must know that someone else's offense doesn't define your life. God moved to protect Joseph in the book of Genesis when he was sold into slavery. God moved to defend the people of Israel in Egypt. He says, I hear them crying and I'm on my way. He intervened for the people of Israel with Balaam when he was about to curse them. Jesus stood in the way of a woman who was being framed for adultery and they stepped in and every single one of those moments, God becomes the defender of the person who is voiceless. Psalm 18 says that God is close to the brokenhearted and we can trust that he's working to defend us. When we trust that God is defending us, we can keep walking in the midst of our pain, assured of God's presence in the middle of it all. Our comfort comes from the promise of his presence. We can trust God's promises will never leave us in the middle of the pain, even though it feels like we're surrounded by chaos, even though we think 
we're going to fall, we can trust that his presence will never drop us. Romans 8 says it this way, neither height nor death nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now everything is summed up in this, nor anything else in creation will ever stop God's love from being with you, will ever stop God's promise of being present in your life. What if instead of focusing on the pain, we focused on and we learned to trust and focus on God's presence in the middle of it? What if we trusted the promise, the promise maker, instead of the pain? Because we know that God won't abandon us. And when you learn to trust the promise maker, you learn to trust his presence, we can see the third principle that we could pick up from Bathsheba. We could trust that our story doesn't end where our pain began. It's vital that we see this because Bathsheba's story does not end in 2 Samuel 12. Bathsheba's life continues. And, 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 and it doesn't end with uh, her being a voiceless victim forced to live out her days in the house of her uh, rapist or in the house of the person who violated her. Instead, there's a trajectory to Bathsheba's life that moves far beyond what happened to her and, and more into what God has for her. I want to make two observations about this. In, in Matthew's genealogy, we could see that her name's not mentioned. She's called the wife of Uriah, which is interesting. And we think that maybe Matthew's covering something up. He's not. Yeah, to be honest, I thought this when I was reading it again, going, why isn't she named here? Is it being hidden? Is this uh, like a redactionist history where they're trying to sweep this awful thing under the rug? No, no, it's not. Not only did God defend her, Uh, But how she is talked about here is a way of God redeeming her. She's referred to as the wife of Uriah. And we all know her name. And everyone reading this would have known her name. But what Matthew is doing is is, he is distancing Bathsheba from David. She's not attached to him anymore. She doesn't have to be known by what David did to her structurally, culturally, textually. This is more of a slap in the face than it is uh, uh, trying to hide something. This is more dishonorable to David than it is to David. Solomon, or to, this is more dishonorable it is for David than it is for Bathsheba. Solomon was a great king and David doesn't get to be attached to him. It's the mother of Solomon was Bathsheba. Her name isn't attached to David's sin either. She isn't tied to the offense. She's not defined what, by what happened. She's defined by who came after her. Bathsheba lived life after tragedy. She shaped the life of the wisest ruler that this world has ever seen. Her name's not mentioned, but the effect of her continues. King Solomon was her son. King Solomon, the writer of most of the Proverbs in our, in our scriptures, was shaped by the wisdom of his mother, not his father. Here's what I mean. If you go to Proverbs 31, I don't know if, if you've ever read this, but this is the uh, Christian college guy's like, wish list whenever they're, they're told to pray for a wife. It's kind of silly. Uh, Proverbs 31 is the woman of valor, and, and it's, it's titled in your scripture maybe as the, as the uh, it says in verse 30, uh, 31, verse 1, that this is the sayings of King Lemuel. And we go, oh, who's King Lemuel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Lemuel was a, was a nickname for this other king named Solomon. And Le, so Solomon wrote this. And then you read on in verse, in verse 31, and it says, an inspired utterance from who? 
his mom. So everything that Solomon's saying here came from Bathsheba. And Bathsheba, the one who was offended, Bathsheba, the one who was violated, Bathsheba, who learned how God defends her, says this in verse 8, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Sounds like Bathsheba learned that God steps in for her defense and she was trusting that God would do so. Bathsheba's influence to Solomon made Solomon think about this more and he wrote it down which is exactly what Bathsheba did. She was a victim. Her life, uh, she was a victim, so her life became one of those lives who stood in the gap for those who were being mistreated. When her son Solomon, who was in, in the book of Chronicles, you get this into your, in your quiet time as well. Chronicles is a lot of names, uh, but it's wonderful. In the book of Chronicles, David promises uh, Solomon that he's going to be king. When David's at the end of his life, though, he starts to go back on that promise. And then Bathsheba steps in. And she reminds David, she goes, hey, look, David, you promised me that Solomon was going to be king. And what's Bathsheba doing? She's standing up for the person who's been victimized, for the person who's being mistreated. And David says, you're right. I did. And this moment of clarity for David at the end of his life, and, and he ends up crowning Solomon king. But what this shows us is that Bathsheba's life moved on from her tragedy. The other observation is this, and, and, and uh, did, did you notice the punctuation in Matthew chapter 1? Flip back there if you want. Punctuation matters. My, my grammar teacher in high school always yelled at me about this. But punctuation matters. Uh, did you see the, the punctuation mark? After the word Uriah's wife. What is it? It's a comma. Commas do what? They have you pause. They have you think. It's a break in the sentence. I get comma happy and my grammar lead yells at me every single time. Periods denote what? Closure. That, that this is the end of the story. When, when I have a moment with my kids, I said, that's what we're going to do. Period. They don't know what period is, but it feels good for me to say, end of discussion, this is what we're doing. Period. Full stop. Whatever you say, that's a period. But a comma tells you there's more coming, right? She was the wife of Uriah, comma. The trauma happened to Bathsheba, comma. The trauma didn't end Bathsheba. Her life continued, and her story wasn't over with all that happened to her. It went on. And her legacy moved on. Solomon became the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. And so on, and so on, and so on. Matthew is intentional here, I believe. I believe he's intentional with how he lays this all out. And something that we could take from this is that your story doesn't end with your trauma. Your story doesn't end by what happened to you. The story doesn't end by what you have done. Your story is continuing. The period of your life is not over until you're dead. And so if there is still breath in your lungs, God is still moving and we can trust that he is doing so. This is a comma. Don't place a period in your life where God places a comma. Your life continues. Is it difficult? Absolutely. Is it messy? More than ever. But it's not the last word. 
the sentence continues. Your story continues. God desires to make right what others have done wrong. And this is the beauty of why Bathsheba is in here, I believe. It allows us the space to to ask the question, how is God going to move in the midst of our tragedies? What comes after the comma in your life? And the answers, uh, with, uh, with all of the evidence that we see, the answer is that God is still moving and working in our pain. If we can trust him. And the more we attach ourselves to him, the more we know that he's moving in the background, the more we know that he's working to redeem the pain in our lives, the more we can trust in him and we can trust the person behind the promise because our God is good Our God is faithful. This is the story of Bathsheba. It's some of our stories too. We desire to see God move in our lives. We desire to see him redeem. And it takes a very long time, all the time. But the more we draw near, the more we trust the more we could say, God, I'm attaching ourselves myself to you, the more we could say to, uh, to him as we're flying through the air chaotically, I believe you're going to catch me. The more it makes our pain possible for redemption. God is still moving. Your life is but yet a comma. It is still happening. Don't get stuck in the middle of it doesn't mean that we don't have to do work. It doesn't mean that we don't have to talk to people. There are people in our community that would love to talk to you about the pain that you're experiencing. They would love to pray with you about this, to invite God into that space that he could start redeeming. And today, maybe something is stirring in you and that pain is there and it's been made painfully aware. But we know that God is moving. We know that God is not done yet. Your pain, though it doesn't make sense now, God can redeem and make into something beautiful. This is what God does. The pain of Joseph saved his people. The pain of Isaac brought forth a nation. And the pain of you will bring something beautiful if we trust that God is still moving. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Not that you bring pain into our lives, but that through our pain, you make yourself known. And so, Lord, in the middle of our pain today, help us to trust. Help us to trust that some way, somehow, sometime through this pain, you will bring redemption. And though we don't know what it looks like and we can't candy coat it and make it any easier, we know that you've done this in the past. And because you've done this in the past, we know that you will continue to do so in the future because you work all things for good to those who believe and those who trust in you. And it might not be good by our standards. It might not feel good by our standards. But you're working. And you say you're always working even until the day of Christ Jesus, even until we are with you, redeemed and made whole. And so Lord, as we enter into this time where pain is made evident, where the scabs are ripped off, 
May we lean in to our trust. May we lean in to you. May we give you the pain. And like a kid coming to their dad with a broken toy, say to you, fix this. And then trust that you will. And it's in your name we hope.